listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I will be your host today. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries awaits for your participation for a listener survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, and it will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address, or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for a paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona, 85029. The survey ends November 30th, and we await for your participation, and thank you for your input. I hope to believe all of our listeners were washed by the blood of Christ last week, living in the presence of His holiness. Some time ago, I saw a picture floating around on the internet. It was a picture of a pitch black room, but one of the walls was cut out in the shape of a cross, and through it shined a light. In front of that wall was a woman looking through the cross and wanted to go through the other side. But the expression on this woman's face seemed as if she was very hesitant. This is because both of her hands were filled with shopping bags. It seemed as if she wanted to go through the wall to the other side, but she did not want to let go of the shopping bags in her hands. Although this was just a simple picture, it put a lot of thoughts to my mind. In order for this woman to go through the cross to the other side, She needed to let go of her shopping bags, and the picture displayed the image of this woman as if she must go through to the other side. Just by looking at this image, there was no alternative way, and the cutout of the cross on the wall was very small and tight. Even if she put down her shopping bags, the cutout was barely enough for her to go through. Looking at this image, it made me think of what Jesus said in the book of Luke in chapter 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For man, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But looking here at the scripture in Matthews, Jesus commands to enter through the narrow gate as he compares it to the wider gate. However, the scripture given to us in Luke was phrased a bit differently. He tells us to strive, to go through the narrow gate. In the original language, strive is agonijamai. This word holds the meaning to struggle, to compete, to fight against enemies, and to make great effort to achieve something. In other words, Jesus is telling us that we must try and make effort into entering through the narrow gate. We must struggle and fight to enter through it. But why must we have to struggle, strive, and to fight to enter through it? He continues on to give us the reason why. He says it is because, for many will try, but not be able. There are many people who think that if we simply repeat after a prayer to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior, then we will receive a ticket to heaven. However, the way to heaven is not by receiving a ticket and getting on an escalator that will lead us there. The gate is simply not something we can enter through just because we would like to, but we must struggle to enter through it. What about our listeners? Are you struggling to enter through the narrow gate? Are you fighting to enter through it? Just like the picture I saw, are any of us standing before the cross with things in our hands just looking to enter through the cross? We'll come back to share more after our first song. a place where mercy reigns and never dies 
Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? Sometimes people interpret this as emptying oneself out, because there are many religions out there who interpret this as this meaning. Further meaning to rid themselves of any personal desires and to kill and control their emotions. But Christians interpret this a bit differently. Instead of disciplining ourselves, of our desires and emotions, the focus lies on God. To choose God's will over mine in any circumstance or situation is how the Christian religion will interpret this. There will always be a spiritual battle for us. Of course there is always going to be the battle to fight against the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But there is a more fundamental fight that we will battle against, which is the fight that happens within our hearts, the fight that breaks out within my soul my will and God's will. We are always constantly battling between the two. The devil who rules over the kingdom of the air does not tell us to serve him. If that devil tells us to serve him over God, who in this world would confide and say, yes, I will serve you? There may be, but it is very rare. What the devil tells us is not to choose between him and God, but he tells us to choose between ourselves and God. He tells us to love ourselves and to love ourselves only that there is nothing more valuable than myself and tells us to not let anyone else rule over us, for us to be like God. This is what the devil tells us to do. In the beginning in the Garden of Eden, Eve was not put in the situation to pick between the serpent and God. She was stuck in the situation of having to choose between the desire of wanting to be like God and the desire of keeping and following His word. As we all know very well, Eve chose to be like God. What are we choosing to be like today? Between my will and God's will, whose am I choosing to follow? I'm feeling so small I'm standing here weeping As I'm coming clean Of the secrets I'm keeping Cause I've caused so much pain To the ones I love the most And I'm falling apart As I carry my heart To your throne I am completely surrendering
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is, What's so great about Jesus? Based on 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. Paul says in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why was Paul an apostle? An apostle was a person who was sent by God. An apostle was someone who actually saw Jesus Christ, and they actually went around telling people about Jesus. They're the ones that started the church. The word apostle, uh, it, it, it means sent one. They, they used to have these, these uh, boats, these ships that were cargo ships, and they were called apostolic ships. What does a cargo ship or an apostolic ship do? It takes the goods from one place to the other. You don't take cruises on them. You don't fish off them. They're just cargo ships. That's what they do. That's an apostolic ship. In the same way, Paul was an apostle. His life was not about entertainment. His life was about getting the cargo of the good news and dropping it off in one place, going to another place, and bringing the cargo there. That's what an apostle did. And Paul says, I do that. Why did Paul do that? He says, because it's the will of God. I'm the, uh, why did, I mean, the, the, the question, why did Paul go around preaching the gospel? Because God wanted him to. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was not an apostle. Timothy was a, a, a fellow believer, a, a brother in the Lord. And I love what he says in verse 2. He says, to, he doesn't say to the church in Colossae. He says, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Paul writes his letter but he doesn't say to this church, he doesn't say, hey, to the church in Colossae, I love the phrase he uses. He goes, this letter is to the holy and the faithful. He doesn't say to the people who attend church in Colossae. There's a big difference. You're all attending church this morning, but some of you in this room are the church, the holy, faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's who Paul's writing to. It's those of you who have taken this seriously and say, you know what, I, I don't just attend church. No, I, I'm a child of God. He has made me holy. He's washed away my sins. I'm pure before him. And my life is about being faithful to him. And Paul says, I'm writing to you. See, Paul had a bond with these people. And the crazy thing about Paul's bond with the church in Colossae was he never met them. Paul never visited the church in Colossae. He knew a couple of the people that he probably met when he was ministering in Ephesus. But he writes these people and he calls them his holy and faithful brothers in the Lord. He goes, I just want to write to you. I want to encourage you. you ever, uh, those of you who have a relationship with Jesus, you ever meet someone in another state or another country and you talk for a few minutes and you realize that they just totally are madly in love with Jesus Christ and immediately you have this bond? You ever felt that? You start talking and suddenly it's like, man, I love this guy. I love this girl. And it's like, but I, I just met him. But it's this automatic bond, and that's what Paul had with these people, the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Let me ask you a question, because he's writing about this church, and he's about to talk about what he's heard about them, but I wanted to ask this question first to you. What do you hear just out on the streets about Cornerstone? Now, there are people who hate our church, people who hate me, hate everything we stand for. Let's not talk about them for a while. We'll pray for them. But, but, not, but then there's other people that say positive things about Cornerstone and, and say, you know, this is what I love about that church. And um, as you think of those positive comments you've heard about church, 
I want you to think, what are the top two things, top two good things people say about church? Because Paul says in verse 3, when he talks about this church, he goes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. He says, you know, here's your reputation. He goes, what I hear is that the people in your church are really filled with faith in Jesus. This is what they were known for. And he goes, and also what I hear is how much you love the saints. You love one another, not just one another in that room, but you love all the saints, all the believers all around the world. You're known for your love and you're known for your faith. And I was thinking about this because we don't talk about these things nowadays. You know, people, when you look for a church, you look for a church, I mean, if you were to move today, you're going to move to Kentucky. Why? Who knows? But you're, you move to Kentucky, you look for a church, what do you look for? I mean, do you really look for these things? Do you really try to find, okay, I want to find a church that's just known for loving one another. I haven't even heard of a church recently that, that markets itself by saying we actually care about each other. We, we, don't, we don't talk about loving each other as a church. We look for a church based upon, well, I, wanna, I want music that I like. I want a good children's program. I, I want to I hear a speaker that's decent. It'll keep me awake. I want, uh, you know, I want this, I want this, I want this. And, and then we'll leave churches for those same reasons. Well, I don't like the music anymore. Well, I found someone who speaks a little bit better. I, I, you know, and it's this and that. And then, well, the kids' program's better over there. You know what? There's, there's better air conditioning here. There is less crowds. There's better parking. There's this, this, this. These are the things we look for and attract us to a church. You do things that turn us away from a church. And yet Paul says, no, what a church should be known for is that the people ought to be so filled with this faith in Jesus and a love for each other, a love for all the saints. And, and, and then I'll hear people complain and they'll go, yeah, this place isn't loving. No one loves me. And it's like, great, let's just all do that. Let's just all sit around and go, yeah, no one loves me. Or maybe God would want us to start loving others and teaching other people to love. Why did they love so much? Look at the verse. What made them love? Verse 5. The faith and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven. So they loved because of a hope of heaven? Isn't that kind of weird? that a hope of heaven, that they thought so much about heaven that it caused them to love people and to have faith. Their faith and love sprung. That means it came out of this thought of the hope that they had in heaven. See, people who think about heaven a lot will love a lot. It's a heavenly-mindedness that causes us to love. That's why, that's why we love the poor, that's why some of you have sacrificed some of the things you own and you go, you know what, I'll live off of less on this earth. Why? Because you're not thinking about this earth. You're thinking about heaven. And so you're going, you know what, if I'm really focused on heaven, then, well, let me take the possessions I have now and give to the poor and love the saints overseas. Let me care for them because I'm not thinking about how beautiful my place can be on this earth. My mindset is in heaven, therefore I love the saints. I give to the poor. You know, I, I hear people who make excuses for why they don't give to the poor. Um, and I've heard this one several times where people go, you know, I can't help it. I, I just like nice things. So I end up buying a lot of nice stuff for myself. I just have expensive taste. I like nice things. And that's your excuse for not giving to the poor. You like nice things. You're one of those weird people that likes nice things. Because the rest of us, we like crappy stuff, right? <laughs> Oh, nothing like a crummy pair of shoes, you know? <laughs> but you, you're one of those like nice things people. Weird. You know, next time I go to Africa, I'm going to tell them, you know, we couldn't really feed you all because we've got problems too. We like nice things. <laughs> we can't help it. You guys, it's, it's this whole idea of, of we all like nice things, okay? But let's just call it for what it is. Sometimes we get selfish. I get selfish. I buy stuff for myself that I don't really need. I just want because I'm looking at my life on earth and I'm not thinking about heaven. That's the bottom line. I'm not heavenly minded enough. 
So I don't love the saints that much. When I think about heaven and my hope is in heaven, then suddenly I don't care about things on the earth and I I love and I give and I serve. But when I think about myself and my life here on earth, that's when my love for people goes away. That's why I love people. I mean, some people I love. I mean, some of you I would love even if I weren't a Christian. I mean, I'd love to hang out with you. You know, you're easy to get along with. Some of you. And then there's others. Honestly, I love you because I have to. I I love you because I'm a Christian. I love you because I think about heaven and I I think about how God wants me to love you. And I go, okay, I'll, I'll love them. I mean, some of you guys love me, and that's the only reason. It's like, well, you'll put up with the different things about me that annoy you. Why? Because you've got this eternal perspective where you go, well, but God in heaven wants his kids to get along. He wants to look down in this room and and see us love one another. And we go, okay, well, because I'm going to spend eternity with you and I'm going to spend eternity with them, I'm going to get along. I'm going to love them. Look, I'd love to come up here and say, oh, I'm just naturally beaming with love. You know, everyone I meet just naturally love them. It's not. I have to focus on heaven in order to love certain people. And you do too. Because we're all sinners. We all hurt one another. And it's like, okay, God, give me that love. Give me that eternal focus so that I will love. And I say that because I believe Jesus Christ is disgusted with the petty arguments that take place in churches. And I say petty because they are all petty compared to the cross. After everything he's done for us, for you to divide or to no longer love another believer, it's just sad. Anyways, um, he goes on and, and he says that he... He's heard about this love and faith that spring from the hope that's stored up for them in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the good news that has come to you or the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. We talked about it a few months ago about how all over the world people are falling in love with Jesus. It's not just in this room. We're just such a small, small piece of it. All around the world, it's bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. He says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Then he says in verse 9, he says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay, I got stuck on that verse for a long time because I've been trying to pray, as I've been reading in the Bible, I I, I see the way people pray in the Bible and I see the way that I pray and sometimes I go, gosh, sometimes I think I ask for the wrong stuff. You know, I pray for certain things in the church and I'm going, that's not the things that God wants in the church. And so I've been looking at the way like the Apostle Paul pray for the church. And he, he tells this church, he goes, ever since I've heard about you, I haven't stopped praying for you. But he says, here's what I pray. Here's the one thing I keep praying for you. And what is it? He says, I keep asking God to fill you with knowledge of his will. That's what Paul kept praying for the church. He goes, I keep asking God, would you fill their minds with the knowledge of your will, what you want for them? How often do you pray that for other people? That God would fill them with the knowledge of his will, his desire. See, God has a will for you. God has a desire for you. But everyone does, right? They had a will for your life. They wanted you to become someone. They wanted you to be a certain type of person, right? They had a will. They had a desire. They wanted you to turn out this way, whatever this way is. None of us pulled it off. But they wanted us to do that, right? And so then we grew up and we have a certain will for our kids, right? We want them to be this certain way. You get married and so your spouse wants you to be a certain way. You want your spouse to be a certain way. Your kids want you to be a certain way. You guys want me to be a certain way. I want you to be a certain way. We have wills for each other. And then we have a will for ourselves. I go, well, I want my life. I don't care what you think. I want my life to look like this. This is my desire. This is what I want. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Jesus says, in fact, if you want to follow me, you've got to hate your father, mother, wife, kids, brothers, sisters. 
He goes, you've got to put aside what everyone else wills of you and trying to please all of those people and follow me. He goes, in fact, you've got to even hate your own life, he says. You've got to surrender your own will, your own desires. They go, okay, I, I'm, I'm even going to escape what I want for myself and I'm going to follow you. Have you ever done that? See, because it's weird because you, it's tough because some people are just people pleasers and so they want to try to, you know, complete everyone else's will for their life. And they go, okay, I'm going to do whatever you want me to and what you want me to and what you want me to. Then every once in a while, there's someone who's strong enough and says, you know, I don't care what all of you want to do. But that person goes, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's not what God's talking about here. He's talking about the person that says, I'm going to put you guys aside for a second. I'm going to put myself aside for a second. And I want to know God's will for my life. And Paul says, this is what I've been praying for, is that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will. See, why, again, why did Paul travel from place to place getting beat up telling people about Jesus? Was it something he desired? No, it was something God desired. He says, okay, that's your will. I'll do it. And so Paul then prays, God, now show everyone else your will for them. Fill them with that knowledge. And so I started praying this. I started praying this for you guys, but then the thought occurred to me. Don't answer this question yet because I know what you'll say right after I ask it, so don't answer it yet. Do you really want to know God's will for your life? Don't answer that. I want you to think about it. Do you really want to know what God wants of your life right now? I mean, do you really, honestly, do you really want, if God could speak to you right now and tell you, this is what I'd like you to do this afternoon, do you really want to know that? Because what if God says this afternoon, I want you to move. Do you even want to know that? Do you really want to know what God wants for, for this next week for you? How he wants you to live, where he wants you to go? Do you really want to know the will of God in your life? Because honestly, honestly, wouldn't you rather not know? Isn't there a side of you that would rather plead ignorance at the end of your life and go, well, I didn't know. I didn't know you wanted me to go to all these places. I didn't know you wanted me to sacrifice that much. So I, I thought it was your will for me to be comfortable, lazy, do nothing, you know? I thought you wanted me to watch TV. I thought you wanted this. I thought you wanted that. Or do you really want to know the will of God? I ask you that because I was struggling with it myself. I'm reading these words and I'm praying for you. I'm praying for myself. And then suddenly I thought, wait a second. Do I really want to know what God wants me to do today? that if God had his way in my life this afternoon, where would he have me go? What would he have me say and to whom? Do I trust God that much? Do I trust him so much believing that, you know, whatever he has for me and his divine plan and his desires, it's going to be better than what I could conjure up for myself? I'm convinced most of us don't really want to know the will of God. Because this way we can uh, intersperse our will with his and not feel the guilt. Bottom line is, it's this trust where we go, okay, no, the more I submit to Jesus' will, the more fulfilled I'll be on this earth. But do you really believe that or are you trying to hold on to a little bit? I needed to ask you that question before I continued praying for you to know God's will. Do you even want to know it? Because God's will may not be what you wanted Paul says, if he, why does he want him to be filled with this knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Verse 10, he says, and I pray this, we pray this, in order that, why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Why does Paul pray that you know his will, that you know God's will? Because that's the only way that you're going to live a life that's worthy of him. You know, worthy, it's, it's like this equal sacredness, you know, of, of God and your life. You know, is your life match up to everything God is? Is your life worthy of him? Are you living to please him in every way? I mean, look at these phrases. He says, bearing fruit in every good work. Does that describe you? Bearing fruit in every good work. That, there's just all of this, this fruit of the Spirit coming out from you because of all the good deeds you do. Because that's God's will. You're bearing fruit in every way. He said you're growing in the knowledge of God. That knowledge is more than just a head knowledge. It's about an intimacy 
in a relationship? Are you growing in your relationship with God? That's God's will for you. Does that describe you? He goes on and and he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Does that describe you? Where you're just strong. You're just strong. You're just strengthened with power. That's God's will for your life. So that you would have great endurance and patience. Is that you? Endurance, patient. You known for your patience? Patience is your middle name. Is that you? This is God's will for you. Joyfully giving thanks. Does that describe you? I love that phrase. Joyfully giving thanks. That's the will of God that we're people in this room that are joyfully giving thanks. Not critical people, not angry people, not looking at everything to nitpick, but we we just see everything that Jesus has given us and we're just joyfully giving thanks throughout the day. Joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Why are we joyfully giving thanks? Because now he talks about our inheritance. That, that is this hope in heaven that we have. Verse 13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. You understand? He rescued you. Do you get that? Do you understand the idea of being rescued? I don't know if you've ever been rescued. I've never been rescued, but I can imagine, you know, just being in a place where you're just, I'm going to die and someone reaches out and rescues you. He gives that picture of rescuing you. See, you are headed down this life, this path where you're living for yourself. You're trying to find all of this pleasure for yourself. None of it's working. You know, trying to find pleasure in all these different things and you get these intermittent moments of pleasure, but it's just not fulfilling. You're headed down this path of selfishness that doesn't lead to joy and it eventually leads you in eternal punishment And he says, I'm going to rescue you from that. I'll have my son pay for all of your crimes. Everything you've done wrong, he paid for it on the cross. I'm rescuing that. Now I'm going to bring you into this different kingdom where you have this future hope and inheritance. And you're going to spend all of eternity with me. I'm going to take you from that junk. I'm going to rescue you and bring you here. Do you understand how big that is? I want to show you a picture of that. This is Sean. I don't know if you can see it real clearly. She got baptized here about a year ago. And I loved her baptism because Sean had lived a life that just totally denied God everything else, was just living for herself, understands that Jesus died for her. And she just got so excited. And I remember baptizing her. This was a year ago. I remember just baptizing her. And the baptism, it all symbolizes us dying to our old selves. Like that, that whole life is over. I'm come out, I'm going to live a new life. And I remember, it's one of those you just can't forget because she came out of the water and she just starts yelling at the top of her lungs. She was so excited. I'm doing her funeral tomorrow. That's not an awe. Because can you imagine if she screamed like that on earth? What it must have been like when she entered the kingdom? I mean, you see the joy there. Can you imagine? It's like this awesome. I mean, as loud as she screamed at this sanctuary when she understood her salvation, I cannot imagine what it must have been like when she saw her Savior face to face. And she's been with him for a while now. See, that's what Jesus has done for us. And so for those who are here saying, well, yeah, if I could have that and, it's like, and what? Don't you understand We've got everything in Jesus. And there's nothing like following his will and searching for his will. There's no fulfillment like living for him. And some of you in this room, it is God's desire, and you know it. It's God's desire to have a relationship with you. That's his will. He's been going after you. He's been pursuing you. That's his will. Now, you may not want a relationship with him, but that's when you decide, who's going to be the Lord of my life? Am I going to follow his will? Do I even want his will? It's God's will for some of you to be baptized today. God, that's what God would want. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you've really died to your old self and decided to follow him, what, what does God desire of your life this morning? It may not be what you wanted, but that's God's desire. Some of you, you're in relationships that God's will is for you to work those relationships out. You're on the brink of disaster. 
And God says, you know what? You know why it is? It's because you're both looking at your own will. You're, you know, well, this person's going, well, you're not, you're not living according to my will. And this person, you're not living according to my will. You're not what I want. You're not what I want. And we get angry. You're not doing what I want. You're not doing what I want. Rather than a couple that together goes, you know what? Let's just surrender our wills and let's both just pray for the Lord and say, God, what, what's your will? You ever hear about a marriage that falls apart because they are constantly seeking God's will? You know? For people to surrender and go, okay, well, here's the come, because we'll never agree. My will for your life, your will for my life, are you kidding me? But if we're just both seeking God and saying, God, give us an understanding of your will, and then give me the strength to actually obey it and trust that it's best for me. If some of you guys need prayer, then we're going to have a prayer time up here with some of the pastors, elders, leaders. How about the prayer room? If you need someone to pray with, if you want to get baptized, you have questions about a relationship with Jesus, come forward. The rest of us, we're going to worship. And, and it's this whole idea of Jesus being the center. You know, this, this, this song that we're about to sing is everything that I've been trying to say. It's a cry saying, God, I want, I want my life to revolve around you and your will. But don't sing it if you don't mean it. Because honestly, some of you are sitting here today and you're struck with this dilemma going, okay, I think he's right. I don't really want to know God's will. Then don't sing this song. Spend some time praying and ask God to change your heart. But for the rest of us that say, you know what, Lord? This is scary, but I do trust you. I mean, you died for me. What, what good thing are you going to hold back from me? And so tell me your will. Tell me, tell me exactly what you would want me to do, even if it sounds like the most torturous thing in the world. Because I know in the end, I'll be glad that I followed your will. No love is wider, no love is deeper 
No love is truer, no love is higher, no love is wider, no love is like your love alone. No love is higher, no love is wider, no love is deeper, no love is truer, no love is higher, no love is wider, no Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that guides us to know what ethics Christians should hold, titled Christian Ethics. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with Christian Ethics. What would be considered a biblical relationship between an employer and an employee? In order to better understand, we must first understand that the relationship between an employer and an employee is not the same as that of an owner and a servant. On occasion, some employers regard their employees as their servants as if they have purchased them with money. They think the employees should do whatever they command because they have paid for the employee's labor. In the Bible, the appropriate relationship between an employer and an employee is suggested in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9 and Colossians chapter 3 verses 22 through chapter 4 verse 1. Although the terms owner and servants were used, the relationship corresponds to that of today's employer and employee relationship. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9 says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. The next verse is in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. When we summarize these two verses, both the employer and the employee must labor for God and do it as if they are serving God. By doing so, their labor will be rewarded. 
If they fail to do so, they will be punished. Employees must treat employers with humility, diligence, and respect, and employers must also treat employees with humility, diligence, and respect. Both the employer and the employee must be honest and avoid superficiality. God gave this command to respect and serve each other as if they were serving God when the concept of ownership over servants actually existed. If Christians back then were able to keep this command, today's employers and employees in this day and age where the concept of ownership no longer exists should find it easier to keep this command. Employers or managers must never pressure the employees with their authority. Employers must never use their authority to make unlawful or sexual demands that are against God's will. Employers must never leave employees in a dangerous work environment. For employment or promotion, employers must only look at the employee's ability, not at their race, religion, friends, or gender. Now, God opposes slavery. He gave us rules and guidelines for slavery in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, not to support slavery, but to protect the slaves. Many Bible verses talk about compensation for labor. Leviticus 19 and 25, Deuteronomy 24, Proverbs 22, Malachi 3, and Jeremiah 22 all reveal God's will for rightful payment and treatment for servants. Servants shall never be oppressed, but always be abundantly rewarded. Some people think that the Bible is biased towards employees, which is unfair for the employers. The critics are usually the employers themselves. What employers must remember is that God made them employers in order to give them more responsibilities. In the United States, we come across many illegal immigrants who are looking for employment. Dishonest employers sometimes take advantage of these illegal immigrants. This is definitely unbiblical and against God's will, paying less than minimum wage or intentionally delaying the payment is not only illegal, but it goes against God's command. Paying less than what the employee deserves is the same thing as stealing an employee's money. If the wage is disproportionately less compared to the company's profit, this could also be considered as a form of theft. Employees must also remember that showing up late to work, wasting time during work, not giving their best, taking a longer break than what was approved, daydreaming during work, could be considered as a form of theft as well. In both of these examples, both the employer and the employee are committing a sin against God because God is the true employer of all of us. If the relationship between an employer and an employee is limited only to financial consideration, both sides will always have complaints towards each other. Employers will think that they are overpaying the employees while the employees will feel as if they are being underpaid. However, if the two remember to work together in love for God's glory, the workplace will be filled with joy and become a place of worship. Christians are voluntary servants for Christ. As Christ loves us, employers must love their employees, and employees must respect the employers as if they are serving Christ in order to reveal God's glory in their workplace. This concludes this week's episode of Christian Ethics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. There's nothing worth more That will ever come close Nothing can compare You're our living hope Your presence I've tasted and seen Of the sweetest of loves 
Where my heart becomes free Yeah, my shame is undone And your presence, Lord Christians, as I have mentioned numerous times before, this means we are people who follow Christ. When we are placed between our will and God's will, we need to look at the ways and teachings of Jesus and note carefully what He did and to follow His footsteps. 
The night that Jesus was captured, Jesus went up to Gethsemane, and it tells us in Luke chapter 23, verse 44, that he prayed earnestly, where his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. At that time, what do you think Jesus prayed so earnestly about? It was about God's cup of wrath toward the sin that Jesus had to take on. He prays earnestly that God may take that cup away from him, and he wraps up his prayer like this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What Jesus wanted was for God to remove that cup from him. This is what he earnestly asked for. He prayed until the sweat became like blood. However, he still prayed for God's will to be done and not his own. This is what Jesus Christ showed us before he left. The woman that stood in front of the cross will not be able to cross through without letting go of her shopping bags. Jesus told us that we must strive to enter through the narrow gate. This is because there will be many that try to enter but will not be able to. If we cannot deny ourselves, then therefore we will not be able to enter through the narrow gate. We will not be able to walk out on that path by also doing all the things I desire to do. If there is something we truly desire, it should be a desire to be the person that God would like for us to be. As Jesus confessed, not my will, but yours be done. This should as well be our own personal confession. This is the person that will be entering through the narrow gate that strives and struggles to win and live for God's will. I hope this next week we may all live to fight to enter through the narrow gate as we will now wrap up unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure and I hope to see you this time next week and God bless. Savior, I come Quiet my soul Remember Redemption's hill Where your blood was spilled For my ransom Everything I once held dear I count it all as lost Lead me to the cross Where your love poured out Bring me to my knees Lord, I lay me down Rid me of myself I believe